Yeah, so what you would say, um, we, can, we can start as soon as, um, what you would say in a narrative class is that a lot of narrative has to do with pacing. That is, if you think about the difference between a novel and a one-sentence spoiler, like, well, the reason that Arya... Never mind. Um, <laughs> you didn't want to hear that part. <laughs> Looking daggers. The is the pacing. That is one of the things we've been talking about in this class is long versus short term and uh, long-term experience and anticipation and desire for what's going to happen at the end of an eight-season series or a two-hour show or a 300-page novel or a one-page story, that the more time there is left to go, the, different, the, the, the more different your desire for what happened next, what happens next will be compared to your desire for what the closure of the thing will be. So pacing is really important to narrative. And, you know, it's something that we all know, that we know when, when a movie isn't well-paced, we know when it is well-paced. But the question is, why should it matter so much? Why should pacing matter so much? If we want to know what happened, why does the pacing that tells you the story of what happened, why does it matter that that pacing should be quick or slow or give you breaks or accelerate? But this is every movie ever, pacing is like one of the most important things. And in fact, filmmakers turn out intuitively to have discovered the kind of pacing that in physics is known, or in, in uh, the physics of, of wave um, lengths, is known as pink noise. And what pink noise is, is that... Could <laughs> See, you tried to move away, but it didn't do any good. Are they speaking Italian? Yeah. is that whenever anything important happens and there's some kind of um, sub-climax, that is a climax of an episode, a climax of, uh, of an interaction, a climax of a scene, then the audience needs a little while to recover from the intensity of the, inten of the attention that they've been Put, that they've been putting into things. So if you, if you compare it to what Ainsley says in Money is MacGuffin about the pacing of gambling, because that's really an article, or one thing that it's an article about, is about pacing. That what gambling does, what the random returns of gambling do, is they pace the fulfillment of desire. And it's a better pacing than you could do if you were doing it yourself. Is that is that a way of describing it that people are 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 grokking, as we youngsters say? Are you do you understand what I mean by that? Um, as a summary of Ainsley, that is that the I mean this may be true of all sports, and it may be why if you think about it, and these are these are all things we're thinking about. 
there's a question why we care about sporting events, why we root for the Yankees against the Red Sox, as we all do, right? And <laughs> the Golden State against everyone, because we love Golden State. The, the, what's happening when you're rooting is that your team will sometimes win and sometimes lose. And only one team will win the championship. And so you put energy into rooting, and, and the payoff for that energy is, on average, 50-50. That is, obviously, Golden State is going to win a whole lot more than, than 50% of the time. And obviously, other teams are going to lose a whole lot more than 50% of the time. But the average is 50-50. Is so you root, and half the time your team wins, and half the time it doesn't. Or half the teams win, and half the teams lose. And when they win, then you feel good. But you only feel good because of the possibility of loss. That is, because sometimes they lose, and you don't know if they're going to win. But if they always won, even if you didn't know they were going to win, if they always won, it would still be boring. So the idea is, as with gambling, that it's what Ainsley calls the management of desire, the management of longing, which is that you want something to happen, but if you always get what you want as soon as you want it, it becomes really, really boring. If you could have anything you wanted as soon as you wanted it, it would be really boring. I actually saw a really good, some, I'm sure some of you have seen this, but a really good adult life um, meme. It's someone saying, um, it's just great to be an adult, or it, it's a list of good things. Has anyone seen this, good things about being an adult? Um, let me just see it. I, I, could, I could probably quote it, but it's so good um, that I'm just going to find it. Um, so it's going to be Sophie and there we go. And is this post I haven't seen? No, good. Oh yeah, here's her spoiler for Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, okay. So this is a um, uh, this was this was on Twitter. Cool things about being an adult: eat chips whenever you want, no bedtime. Tired all the time, sad all the time. Wait a second. So that's the list of cool things about being an adult. Um, you can eat chips whenever you want. That's really great. And you don't have to go to bed. You can stay up as late as you want. So you're tired all the time and sad all the time. And that's because adulthood, when consumer products are available, really mess with your ability to sustain desire. It's really hard. This is what we were talking about when we talked about trying to not ruin your appetite before going out. If you can always market clear your desires, if whenever your desire hits a threshold, you can immediately fulfill it, you won't have the experience of sharp desire. Remember the distinction that in, in uh, the Gilded Six Bits between being hungry, do you remember this? That, um, that uh, Joe is hungry and Missy says she's hungry, but what does he say to her? It passes really quickly. It wasn't anything I was thinking we would focus on, but do you remember that? 
It's a nice little moment at the start. I'm sure you all read the Gilded Six Bits for the quiz we're about to have. I think you've kind of twigged onto. Um, he's like, Joe says you ain't hungry, sugar. You're just a little empty. Yeah. So what's the difference between being hungry? Does everyone remember that moment? Does anyone remember that moment? <laughs> Besides Emma? You remember it. Okay, good. So you all pass, because two of you have heroically remembered the important moment. What's it, so read it again. Um, so she says... She says, um, water is on the fire, no clean things, it's cost to bed, hurry up and wash yourself and get changed so we can eat. I'm hungry. As Missy said this... She, she bore, says, so she says, I'm hungry. As Missy said this, she bore the steaming kettle into the bedroom. You ain't hungry, sugar. Joe contradicted her. He's... Just a little empty. I'm the one that's hungry. Okay, so what's the difference? Yes. It kind of <clears throat> reminds me of like, like I have a habit of boredom eating. Mm -hmm. like if I'm not doing anything. Yeah. Like you just don't have something to do. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're not hungry, so it's just something. Yeah. Terrible. Now, if you're like totally full, then you're probably not going to boredom eat. But if, you, if there's room and the chips are there, then, um, then sure, why not? So being empty and being hungry are two different things. And empty is where if there's food available, you'll eat. Because that is, a mar I mean, in, in Joe's terminology, because that's a market clearing moment. It's that you get to a threshold where it's worth it to fulfill the, the um, desire that you want to fulfill if it's easily fulfillable. And if it's not, if you would have to you know, go to the convenience store, that might be a little bit harder and you might not get up and do it. Or if the convenience store is closed and you have to go to the supermarket and stand in line and drive over there, it's going to be that much harder to do. But when something is completely available, then, at, then there's, as soon as you can satisfy a desire, you satisfy it, and what that means is you don't have the experience that Joe has, which is the experience of actually being hungry and therefore having a much better experience of satisfying a desire than if you're satisfying it at a low level. So that's why hunger, that's, what, that's why you want to have a bit of a sharp hunger if you're going out for a fancy meal. Because if you've eaten chips all the time, and then you go out to the fancy meal, then the fancy meal is just going to be like more chips. Um, it'll be fine, but it won't be great. So that is um, Hurston, who, do people know about her? Do you know she was an anthropologist? That's an important, well, yeah, boy, do you know about that. Um, but yeah, that's an important thing to know is that, um, yeah, why didn't you describe it? Because um, I had occasion to look at your um, oh, senior really? thesis, yeah, or your senior essay, rather. Yeah, um, basically, Hurston was an anthropologist even before she was a writer. Like, she was very interested in anthropology and studying, like, other peoples, and um, a lot of people, Talk, like think that her anthropological contributions were don't amount to much, um, but that she should, is only really known for her literature. But like what I wrote about is that 
her contributions to anthropology actually strengthen her literature because a lot of what she writes in her stories is influenced by what she studied when she traveled around because she did a lot of her research in the South studying black communities and like most anthropologists were white at the time and so they didn't, they couldn't get like insider, like accurate information on like the all black communities because they weren't really trusted. And you can see the end of the story is precisely about that. I mean, it's, it, it's a fun ending. It's not the most important part about the story. But at the end of the story, when the white shopkeeper is just shaking his head at um, just how um, interestingly easy the lives of black people are because they're just easygoing and everything is fine. And again, to put it in these terms... Um, the what he is essentially saying, you know, obviously it's just, it's an it's a throwaway ending. It's not the important part of the story, but it still is consistent with the story. And essentially, what he's saying is they have lives where as soon as they have a need, they satisfy it. And whereas what we have to do is work really hard, and um, we don't get to satisfy needs for a long time. So he's he's not saying that's better. Uh, that is that, that that's a better experience, but it's the same issue. These issues are extremely familiar to us, the issues of satisfying a need. To go back to cigarettes, which is how this came up, um, Prue is asking, why is um, Sam Spade always rolling cigarettes? And the, we started talking about that as a question of pacing. But if you, but Oscar Wilde's famous, does anyone know Oscar Wilde's famous line about cigarettes? I know none of you smoke, so so it's just not going to... Did any of you ever smoke? No? Just, God, this is the most virtuous class ever. You don't vape? Um, do you tweak? What? Yeah. Yeah, you know, meth. You know, it's a thing. It's like you take some meth and you feel good, and then you start feeling bad, so you take more. What's the problem? <laughs> um, and then your dentist gets a lot of money from you, plus other things. Okay, so none of coffee. How about coffee? Are any of you addicted to coffee? I used to be. You used to be. Are any of you addicted to anything? Wow. All right. The internet? <laughs> yeah, well, okay, but no, that's a really great example. Is Facebook is a really great example, which is, or iPhones are a really good example, which is that that except when you're in class and when you have teachers who are harsher than I am, um, you can uh, just check Facebook every three minutes. And there's no pleasure in it, right? It's like it's not like checking to see whether you've gotten into college or whether you whether the poem that you submitted has been published or something. It's just okay. Um, let's update. And I'm sure you've all had the experience of looking at Facebook and then um, deciding, okay, you know, there's nothing on Facebook, no notifications. Um, so you start typing in another address in your browser, and what you're typing in is Facebook. Have you had that experience? It's not even refreshing it. It's like, okay, I'm done with whatever it is I'm looking at, so I'll go check Facebook. But what you've just been looking at is Facebook. No, you haven't done that? You've done it. Yay, a moment of, 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 <laughs> of, of, of not perfect rationality. I'm so glad. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so that the reason you do that, what Facebook is um, pretty good at doing, but it's also why people finally get sick of it, is making you making itself available all the time, so that as soon as you have a desire to check Facebook, you check Facebook, and as soon as you have a desire for some kind of um, social media ratification um, from someone. Um, from your friends, from people on, on social media or whatever, as soon as you have that desire, you um, can satisfy the desire. And then those of you who do, any of you use the apps that get you off your phone for a time? No. <laughs> uh, do any of you see the attractiveness of such apps? Who's in a home for? I know they have them for like, that's weird, but I know they have them for like driving. No, no. So there are apps. There are certainly iPhone apps. This is Apple being evil. I should just tell you this. Um, there, are there are iPhone apps that will basically make it hard for you to check your phone except every however many minutes or hours you put in. So the point is that what you're doing is what's... It's like throwing away in a game of chicken, throwing away the steering wheel. It's a strategy commitment. Um, you will check your phone every three minutes if you can, right? And so there's an app that makes it hard to check your phone every three minutes. Yeah. I heard Apple was like suppressing. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. So so Apple is banning the apps that prevent you from using your iPhone constantly. Except Apple has its own app that will let you do it. Screen times. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't just tell you like. So you can look and feel bad about yourself. Is that screen time? <laughs> yeah, but it yeah. won't like stop you from going on. Right. Why but do they care? You've already bought the phone. Yeah, but they bought online for like other apps probably in the Apple store like ecosystem. Because they want you addicted to your phone. Yeah. That's how they make money. Oh, because then if you don't feel like you need it as much, then you won't feel the need to go buy it. Well you won't buy apps. They don't, they don't make money from the phones, a lot of their money comes from the app store. So yeah. if you're not using your phone, they're not making a lot of money. Usually hardware is actually losing money. Like usually any company that makes the hardware loses money on the hardware and makes money on the software. Yeah, so just buy the hardware and don't use it and you'll come out ahead. <laughs> <laughs> then you win. Ooh, I have this iPhone 10, which I never use. Ha ha, Apple. <laughs> so yeah, no, they're they're making yeah. Every time you watch a movie, every time you're, you, you download a song, if you subscribe to Spotify, whatever, or Apple Music, they, that's where they're making money. So they really don't want you to limit the use of apps. And, um, but the point is, I, do you guys know the story, the ones who walk away from Omelos, the Ursula Gwynn story? Do you know it? It looked like you were raising your hand. The ones, the ones who walk away from Omelos. You do know it. Okay, so it's a story about a utopia. I'll just tell you quickly. It's a really good story. It's not even a story. It's a description in, um, that, that is a story, but it's a story of description. So it's a story about a, utopian about a utopian world where everything is absolutely wonderful. But it's not wonderful in a Disney way. It's wonderful in a serious way, which is to say that um, there's real poetry, there's love, there's longing, there are there's work that people do. It's um, it's uh, she she wants you to think about what a really wonderful utopia would be like. And part of the point is it wouldn't be like Disneyland. It wouldn't be eat chips whenever you want, stay up as late as you want. Um, 
feel tired all the time, feel sad. Um, it, what it is is just a place where it's kind of the ideal of what you might have fantasized a university would be. That is, that there would be smart people and um, tough and interesting conversations and hard work to do, but work that was worth it and that was transcendently interesting or something like that um, with people who are idealists. That's kind of the way she's describing Omelas. And then there's a point to this description, which, I, which we won't get into, but it's, it's a moral challenge. It's actually a thought experiment. This, it's a four-page story. And it's a thought experiment. And at one point, though, um, she's basically listing all the things that are there and all the things that aren't there. And she also tells you, you can imagine this any way you want. If, for me to describe Omelas, if what I have to do is, um, uh, or if, if for you what I'm trying to describe would be better if there were vacuum cleaners, then of course there are vacuum cleaners. Why shouldn't there be labor-saving devices? But I think there wouldn't be TVs. And that what people would do when they wanted um, to be in the world of stories and in the world of narrative is they would tell each other stories. And um, their singers and their bards would be really good. So she's offering you... Um, it's a kind of a slightly interactive story because she's saying you can think of it this way or this way or this way, whichever makes it what would actually be this kind of community which, which um, would make you feel energized and real all the time. And so I was teaching this one summer, and I asked um, in, in, a, in a short story course, and I asked my students, would you have iPhones in Omelas? And they all said no, which is really interesting, because then um, they all were looking under the desk at their iPhones, as um, we do. And so everyone recognized that in their own utopia, in a utopia that they could invent, they wouldn't have iPhones. They wouldn't have smartphones. And yet, all of them wanted smartphones. And it's not that there's anything hypocritical about it. It's that what they recognized was a long-term interest in caring about, you know, why, do, why is it, I mean, it's a cliche, but it's a, it's a well-known cliche, that social media seems to be more attractive second to second than actual social interaction. That you go to a restaurant and there are four people sitting around a table with each other socializing, except they're checking social media to see people, to see whether, to make connections with people who are not there. And it's not that those connections are somehow deeper. Ooh, I got a wow, not even a like, but a wow. Um, it's not that those connections are deeper. It's that you, that they're always available. And because they're, they're always available, you only need the slightest desire to check, and you can check. And that means that you're just in this hum of boring, of, of very slightly, well, what you call boredom eating. It's boredom checking. And what that means is that your life is boring, but the reason it's boring, it's not that you check social media because your life is boring. It's that you it's that your life is boring because you check social media all the time. 
because a need or a desire or a wish can't build up to a place where it becomes interesting because you can satisfy it as soon as you begin to feel it. You can satisfy it, and therefore it can't build up to a moment of interest. So in gambling, as Ainsley is putting it, you can't satisfy your desire immediately. It's the luck of the cards or the luck of the dice or the luck of the roulette wheel or the luck of the slot machine which will fulfill that desire. And so your desire builds up and the one thing about gambling is that it's never boring because you never know what's going to happen. And so because it's never boring, your desire to win or your desire not to lose, because that's also what, why, what keeps people gambling, is they lose a little, and then they want to make back what they've lost. That's the sunk cost fallacy part of it. That desire is always interesting because it gets fulfilled more or less randomly, and you can't fulfill it at will. So you can't win, you can eat chips all the time, but you can't win chips all the time. See what I did there? That was good. That's seriously, I think you don't see how good that was. Uh, all right. So pacing in narrative is the same thing, which is there's this terrible, 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 it's so terrible I don't make anyone ever watch it, um, but a terrible James Wood movie called Cop. Do you, do you guys know who he is? He's, um, you do know, you know who, who James Wood is? Is he like the conservative yeah. California? Yeah. Yeah, so he was, he was a pretty good actor once upon a time. And um, kind of over the top, really intense actor. But he, he thought it was really important for everyone to know that he got double 800s on his SATs and that he was superior to everyone. And now he just is, um, I'm actually banned by him, so I'm really proud of this. Um, but he's just a Twitter ranter about how great Donald Trump is, which, you know, I'm neutral about whether you like Donald Trump or not. But he's not neutral. He's a ranter about um, how great Trump is and how awful um, undocumented immigrants are, et cetera. And he, um, at any rate, but he was a good actor. And then he directed himself in this movie called Cop. And the amazing thing about Cop is he's the cop. He's a tough cop. He, this is in, um, he's about 40, I guess, in the movie, or 45. And what's incredible about this movie is that every time he's in danger, he immediately deals with the danger before the danger ever builds up at all. So we know that the bad guys are waiting in an empty gym and that if he goes in, they're going to ambush him and he's in danger and we're worried about it. Except he goes to the door of the gym and he says, oh, I bet the bad guys are in here. And he opens the door and shoots them before they can see him. So he's, it's like there's never any moment when we feel any genuine peril on his behalf. And that's like eating chips all the time. It's like there's no anxiety whatever. So that relationship of anxiety, desire, preference, and um, discounting and timing, how long do you want to be anxious? If you can eat chips all the time, then 
you're just not going to be anxious at all. What were you going to say, Oner? So, um, so this structure of desire, where you're just grazing, it's not fun. Does this parallel, to what extent, does this make money a, a good representation, a good model of desire, since money is, monetary value is, is defined through scarcity? And, and, and is that just the... I'm, I'm just wondering, because whether the kind of excitement that you get, that like, you know, sort of like when things are the fascination of what is difficult, is it just, is it, is it, a, is it a, to what extent is it a matter of scarcity, or is it, um, anyway, that's that. Well, I, you know, I think that's a whole lot of what the Gilded Six Bits is about. But just to go back to the wild quotation, since even though none of you smoke, Oscar Wilde, do you know the line? Yeah, so what he says is that cigarettes are the perfect type of, the, of a perfect pleasure. Um, sorry, they're the perfect type of a perfect desire. They give pleasure and they never satisfy. So for him, what makes cigarettes the best thing in the world is that they always give pleasure and they never satisfy. You never smoke a cigarette and think, oh good, now I don't need to smoke a cigarette. Um, it's people don't smoke, I mean they actually do, but people don't smoke because they're bored, they smoke because um, cigarettes are always, um, give, always give pleasure, but the thing is they always give pleasure because they don't satisfy. And that seems paradoxical. See, someone checking their phone even as we speak. Um, that seems paradoxical. Um, <laughs> that seems paradoxical, but um, isn't. It's that that um, if you graze, if if you um, just eat chips whenever you want, then you lose the two-step pleasure of a desire and its strong satisfaction. Again, there's a way that you can see that this is what's happening at the end of the Gilded Six Bits between Joe and Missy, that um, they had a weekly pleasure that was um, great, and it was good that it lasted once, that, that they had this once-a-week um, pleasure, that um, the one night a week when they could get together and have sex and play was something that would build up over the course of the week. That is um, part of the holiness of the Sabbath in the very idea of the Sabbath that we first get in the book of Exodus. That it's the whole idea of the weekend. It's the whole thank God it's Fridays idea. If every day were Friday, you wouldn't be thanking God. You might think you would. Wouldn't it be great if every day were Friday? And the answer is no, because you'd be working every day. It would be great if every day were Saturday, maybe, but not Friday. But um, it's the uh, the idea is that you that a longing has built up, and you could have satisfied that longing earlier if you didn't have to go to school or if you didn't have to work. But you do have to go to school and you do have to work. And you guys all know that people who party every night like they enjoy parties less than you do, right? Those of you who come to class because you didn't party the night before. Um, you don't agree? Would you really rather be partying every I night? Just, I don't like parties. Like, oh, okay, there you go. <laughs> the softball team parties a whole lot, and they never seem to tire of it, so... 
Yeah, but deep down they're tired. Deep well, down they're not admitting it to themselves or each other. No, they're in deep existential anguish. Deep down. No, they are. <laughs> I'm I'm joking, but I'm serious. So the in a story if if Sam Spade has to think about what he's going to say, or if he has to slow the conversation down, or if he has to look like he's not panicking. All quick reactions, you know, think about what panicking is. Panicking is also a kind of hyperbolic discounting. That is, you're in danger, and what you want to do is get out of it as fast as you possibly can. And what do we call that? Panic. And the thing about Spade is he never panics, He's always deliberate. He is always putting a long term above a short term. And that is because he's hard-boiled. Do people know what the term hard-boiled means when you talk about hard-boiled detectives or hard-boiled crime novels? Not a term you... Have you heard it? Um, But you don't... So do you have a... But you don't have a sense of what it means. It basically means that... um, that these are people who have, well, that the narrator or the writer is giving you a world in which people have seen everything, in which they've had every experience, in which the idea that there could be a better um, world, a more cheerful world, a world in which people were unselfish and happy and so on, that idea is, that they, that, that's been boiled out of them, that the mushiness of that kind of innocent hope for the world that's been boiled out of them. So hard-boiled means um, that they're hardened through long immersion in the world in which they are, um, in in the world which they're navigating. So to be hard-boiled would be, for example, not to be shocked that um, if you come home early one night, your spouse is in bed with another person. Um, Not to find that just a a completely unforeseen possibility. Spade foresees everything. And it's not that he knows everything, although one really interesting fact about the Maltese Falcon is he does. It's that there is nothing that will surprise him. And the reason, one thing to notice about the Maltese Falcon is that we never see anything from Spade's point of view. What we always get is what he's looking like. We can only know, what are the, what are the emotions that he feels that we know he feels in the Maltese Falcon? Or maybe let's use a larger word inner experiences that he has. Is he in love with Bridget? <laughs> That's a good expression. What does your expression signify? Prove. I mean, the man gets around. I don't think <laughs> he's fit for love, quote-unquote. Oh, do you not like him? No, I He's too... too de- too satanic? Yeah. That's uh, another thing. He repeats, like, so many Vs. <laughs> yes. Especially at the start. Have you seen the movie? No. Has anyone seen the movie? There's a movie 
Oh my god. It's like one of the it's 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 in many people's ten best lists. So there are actually three movies of the Maltese Falcon. Why did I bother reading it? <laughs> <laughs> because the movie lives leaves out Flickcraft for one thing. Has anyone seen um, Brick? Yeah. Yeah. Did you like it? Yeah. Good. That was a close call. Um, it's partly based on the Maltese Falcon. Uh, do you remember, I'm sure you don't, but do you remember what the signal is that the brain is supposed to do in his car when um, he's meeting her at the football field? He, sa- he says honk three times. Two sh- I think it's two shorts and one long. That's straight out of the, the ring, the buzzer, and the Maltese Falcon. So a little bit brick, which is a great, great movie. Two thousand five, I think it is. Um, a, a, more than a little is based on the Maltese Falcon, and but the so there are three movies of the Maltese Falcon. The third is the best. It's directed by John Huston, who you may know as the father of Angelica Huston, but who was one of the great directors. He's also, if you've seen anyone seen Chinatown, man, you guys. You are so lucky because there's so many great movies you can see. Um, he's the villain. He plays the villain in Chinatown, Noah Cross. So um, in the um, movie version of the Maltese Falcon, uh, Spade is played by Humphrey Bogart. And Humphrey Bogart is the perfect hard-boiled detective. He is tough as nails all the time. And it's actually, once you've seen the movie, it's hard to read the book without thinking Humphrey Bogart because the fir- the movie follows the book really really well until the an- until basically the last hundred pages and all the stuff about Gutman's daughter and so on none of that's in the movie it's um, the the that's about an hour and a half into the movie and then we cut straight to the last scene and, um, you know, one of the most, it's, this doesn't happen in the movie. It's one of the most chilling moments in the book is, and a really important moment is what happens to Wilma, to um, Gutman, do you remember, at the end? We only hear it reported by the two cops. But what happens to Gutman? Those who finished it, or are we still rolling cigarettes? We're still rolling cigarettes. If I roll cigarettes long enough, will you forget you asked? I probably will if you do it with, in a tough guy matter, manner. Yeah. How about a drink? Yeah. Here, have a drink. Success to crime. Um, <laughs> all right. So remember, there is this final coming up. So <laughs> it's a detective novel. It's like if I were to assign you to watch Game of Thrones, you wouldn't watch Game of Thrones, right? Because it would be schoolwork. You'd probably read Plato instead. What? <laughs> oh my God, we've got to, got to watch all this Game of Thrones. Ah, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to read Plato. I want some fun tonight. Um, yeah. There actually is, there's like a clip. James Corden made one of his writers like sit for 67 hours in the same room and watch like every single episode of Game of Thrones like in season one all the way through. Is that true? Yeah, there's a seven minute clip because they track him like watching all the episodes and what he does in this room. It's, it's really funny. By the end, he's like just so depleted. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah, it's like he'd read Plato for yeah. 67 hours.
Yeah, one generation's um, joyous um, entertainment. You know, novels were once considered brain-rotting crap. And all the great novels of the 19th century, you were not supposed to read. Well, then what did you read? The Bible? Yeah, and you read, um, you read improving things. You read moral homilies and, and um, books full of sermons. And, um, yeah. Things. Or you just couldn't read. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. But this is for people who could read. Um, so you're telling me in, like, a decade, like, a naked woman prostituting themselves on TV on Game of Thrones is going to be like boring? Well, it's already boring. It's already boring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't think the sex scenes are boring? Pacing. Yeah, you don't think the pacing of the sex scenes is bad? No. I mean, within the scenes. The sex scenes are just a better version of rolling cigarettes. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. They are part of the pacing of Game of Thrones. Absolutely, they are. And um, but what and what they aren't. I mean, it's basically. Well, porn is another good example. Also, uh, the availability of porn is another thing that makes that makes um, things that used to be exciting boring. Um, the the easy availability of porn makes um, voyeurism boring, and the. Oh, but so all of that is pacing, and it's pacing both of how we what we feel on behalf of a character like Sam Spade, and what we feel as we're reading the story, and we want things to happen, um, we want some things to happen, and we don't want other things to happen. Okay, it's um, I did want to talk, but maybe I'll just ask this as a question for you because I know you're going to finish the Maltese Falcon for the exam um, and you now know you're going to finish it for the exam because um, it will it'll definitely be a required Maltese Falcon question Solid. on the exam. Is it cumulative? So everything through the beginning of the semester? Yeah. Solid. Yeah, I'm... What? How's the format? It's good. It's good. It's doing well. It's happy with itself. It, 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 it feels like it's been keeping up and that it's, you know, it's not, it's not sure that it, it's not arrogant, but it feels pretty good about itself. But thanks for asking. I'll, I'll tell what you asked. Um, essays. Uh, and shorter, but there, there won't be any, I don't know. Uh, there might be short answer questions like in the midterm. Um, there'll definitely be two or three sentence answers, and there'll be a couple of essays. And, um, you know, it's a three-hour exam. That means you can, it's really a two-hour exam, but you have three hours to do it in. And um, so I know you don't want 200 short answers. <coughs> Is that a good guess? Okay. Um, so uh, three hours, two hours of writing, one way or another. And some of that on the Maltese Falcon. Are you going to update the syllabus? So let's say hypothetically somebody cough cough. Yes. <laughs> it's like, a, so you want a list sure of. We have everything covered. You want a list of what we read. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so you because like the syllabus, I don't, I don't. No, the syllabus, we're 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 like halfway through it. 
didn't even make it to Bitcoin. That's in the title. I don't know why you taking this class. I mean, Is that true? <laughs> I saw Bitcoin. I'm like, no, I wonder what can be discussed about Bitcoin. Okay, so read David Auerbach's essay then. We'll, we'll put that on the final, even though we, we haven't talked about it. So I'll put, no, it's good. It's good for you to read something for the final. It's an essay. It's good. Related to the basketball coach? No. Okay. Um, he used to be the tech writer for um, Slate, and he's a really interesting guy. Um, he is the guy who invented um, the bubbles that says that someone is texting you back. Um, because they don't text you back, right? It's like you're waiting and waiting and waiting, and <laughs> you really did. It's okay. So we'll meet tomorrow, right? Bubble, bubble, bubble disappears. Yeah, yeah. Um, he also um, has a really good. He he actually was. Uh, castigated by the less wrong community. Do you, people know about less wrong? Um, Yudowski? All right, do you know what Ro um, Roko's Basilisk is? Yeah. Um, so do you feel bad for knowing? Are you worried about the fact that you know what it is? Well, you don't tell people, yeah. Oh, I'm not supposed to? I thought I was supposed to. <laughs> Only if they're going to help. Okay. What? <laughs> <laughs> so so um, I'm going to give you a completely different version of this. How much time do we have? Okay. Uh, this, is what I, this is what I said I was gonna, uh, we were going to talk about on Monday. Um, so just um, one thing to think about. Um, think about this for the exam, even if you don't think about it for the essay for an essay um, for this class. But one thing to think about the Gilded Six Bits, um, one thing to think about the Rocking Horse winner and in the Freud, which will both be on the exam, um, is the relationship of um, sexual instincts, as Freud would call them, or sexual drives to money. So um, the Rocking Horse winner, clearly there's something intensely sexualized about riding the rocking horse the way he does, faster and faster, and um, that somehow turns into money. And the um, phrase, there must be more money, there must be more money, um, is uh, um, which has to do with, with um, gambling also, is sexualized. The idea of sexuality as itself a desire that builds and builds and builds and can't be satisfied immediately and should not be satisfiable immediately, that in that story gets connected to money. And then anal eroticism gets interestingly connected, as Freud says, to parsimony. That is that, uh, do you guys use the adjective anal? Like, uh, my roommate is so anal that blah, blah, blah. Like anal retentive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, anal is short for anal retentive. And that's what this, this, the idea of being anal retentive, this is one of the places where that idea comes from. Um, that people who are anal retentive are also parsimonious. Um, they don't spend a lot of money. They're miserly. So that money, in some sense, seems to function like shit. And that is a really deep insight of Freud's, that um, there is something, there is a way that money functions like shit. 
and or substitutes for shit in people's minds. But um, in the Gilded Six Bits, there is, again, notice that what happens... What, how, what, what is it that... Not why does Joe forgive Missy, but how do we know that he's forgiven her? What, what does he do with that Gilded... Um, you, you guys all know that two bits means a quarter. That if someone says, I wouldn't give you two bits for this. Two bits is actually a quarter of a dollar. It's a um, standard, it used to be a standard um, measurement of currency. Okay, so the six bits basically means 75 cents. What does he do with the gilded 75 cents at the end of the story? Those who have read it. Oh, it's almost the end of the semester. I've been doing so much reading for this class. It's just been taking all my time. Okay, so you might want to finish the story um, and see what he does. You know what he does, right? I actually forgot. Okay, Emma, do you remember? I'm going to get up now. Okay, never mind. Um, oh, this exam is going to be fun, fun, fun um, for me. It's so easy. You have no idea how easy it is to grade an exam when people are like leaving many, many, many blanks uh, as their answers, and you can just go x x x x s. It's so much easier than reading your terrible handwriting. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the worst. Sorry. You made us feel like a sense of impending doom about the midterm. And then I was nice, so you stopped reading. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I think your satisfaction came too fast. Um, it was like eating chips. All right. <laughs> oh, okay, that would be it. All right, here is a question for you. Um, this is known as Newcomb's Paradox, and, I'm, and it's, we won't have time to talk about it, but it's the last um, kind of game theory, philosophical, interesting thing that we're going to talk about. Um, so there is an oracle. And what she is, is she's amazingly, amazingly good at, at human psychology. She's in Marsh. She's a Martian anthropologist. And what she does is she picks people at random, and they all know what she does. So there's nothing hidden about this. You have to understand that everything about this is known. She picks people at random, and she sends them two envelopes. One is an envelope which has a check in it which says pay to the order of whoever it is, pay to the order of Nicole, $10,000. And it's an absolutely good check. You know that it's good. The other, check, the other envelope is opaque. You don't know what's in it. And what you do know is that that other envelope either has a check for a million dollars in it or it just has a blank sheet of paper saying, sorry, you lose. And That's not a blank sheet of paper. <laughs> I, God, that's the paradox. That's the paradox. <laughs> um, either a blank sheet of paper or um, which, which all but says, sorry, you lose. <laughs> Um, in all, it says it in all but words. And um, here's the deal. So this is the part that you have to focus your mind on because this is the part that, that no one tends to get the first time. If, and you know this rule, she knows the rule, everyone who's played this game knows the rule, and a million people have played the game before and it's always worked out the same way. If you burn 
the $10,000 check before you open the other envelope. If she predicts that you will burn the $10,000 check before you open the other envelope, based simply on her snap judgment of your psychology, the other envelope will have a million dollars. If she predicts that you'll open the other envelope to see what's in it, and instead of burning the $10,000 check, the other envelope will have the blank sheet of paper on which is typed, etc. Um, so she can't affect what's in that envelope. It's already, you have both envelopes. If she predicts that you will keep both, then the opaque envelope with the, million, with the possible million dollars will be empty. If she predicts that you will trust her prediction that you will burn the envelope and show your trust by burning the envelope, the other envelope will have a million dollars in it. So this is like the x-rays in, um, in A Serious Man. That is, that it's already a done deal. The envelope already has either a million dollars or nothing in it, but her prediction of what you will do with the $10,000 will affect what she puts in that other envelope. So should you do what if she predicted you would do it would make her put the million dollars in the opaque envelope? No. <laughs> okay. Problem solved. Um, think about it. it. Just, if it's already a done deal. Yeah. So any rational decision maker would, like it's, it's not does not affect it at all. Okay, so, it's so been but all just, of them should be blank. Okay, but it's been done a million times, and people have split 50-50, and the 500,000 people who have burnt the envelope got a million dollars, and the 500,000 people who didn't only got the 10,000. Well, I'm not the kind of person who would burn that thousand dollars, so all right. <laughs> I know my answer. Okay. Um, so actually, so I, I found, I mean, you guys can go, but one really interesting thing, Ian, is um, the way I sometimes put this when um, there's longer time to talk about it is to think of it as you have seven friends with Ebola, and one envelope definitely contains two um, doses of a complete antidote to Ebola and would cure two of them. The other envelope might or might not contain antidotes to five cases. And if you take that envelope and it does contain the antidotes, you would cure five people. So um, if you get all seven, you cure all seven of your friends. If, you, um, if she thinks you're going to open the envelope with two antidotes, the other one's going to be empty. If she thinks you're going to burn the envelope with two antidotes, then you'll be able to save five friends. So it's a kind of combination of a trolley car problem with a with newcombs. And see if you think of it that way. Think about it for a while, but see if you think about it that way. Whether you'd still definitely keep both. You might. It might make you feel even more strongly that you keep both. Yeah, I think that um, that's a harder question. I think. Okay, neat. Because it's loss aversion rather than yeah. gaining. Exactly. Nice. Nice. Okay, you guys, see you at the exam. It's going to be fun for me. So you're a senior, so I'd prefer if you got it in earlier, but yes.
Yeah, so for seniors, the sooner you can get your papers in, the better, but um, the exam is the deadline. Okay. Professor? Yeah. Will you still be holding your usual office hours? Today, yeah. How about the following week? No. Uh, will you hold any office hours? Yeah, I mean, you can make an appointment with me. Over email? Yeah. And will you send out the, the list? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I will. Uh, thanks. Roxana, the financier, money by Zola. Yeah, it's all good. Sure. Hi. Okay. Letter, but yeah. if you said it's only going to take like two hours. Well, it's it is a two-hour exam, but because no, everyone like is entitled to three. No, but because everyone is entitled to three, you're entitled to four and a half. Okay. Just as a just as a matter of policy. Okay. Okay. So that'll be fine. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Okay. See you then.